Hi, I'm Rosie and welcome to the History of Rosie Roaring Twenties podcast. Today I'm joined by Marissa from the Curly Hair Academic on Instagram. Hi, Marissa. Hello. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your like Instagram or like your areas of research? Yeah, so um, about a year ago I started my Instagram focusing on um, originally the notorious women of history, basically the idea that women, if they don't fit in the traditional narrative, then they're considered bad in quotation marks. And so wanting to give highlights into why they were considered notorious and then going into what it actually meant. But it's kind of just developed. I was like, I just want to go into more academic lifestyle, but still focusing on that. So I have my blog and my account and I just finished my um, bachelor's degree at the University of Iowa and I have plans to go into history at a graduate level so I'm working on applications currently hoping to go into something with the history of women in the 20th century and my big research project has been over looking at women in the Midwest specifically in Iowa just because that's where I live and looking at how the Roaring Twenties impacted women and what are the differences and similarities between urban and rural areas. In like a 60 second pitch of that. that. <laughs> I mean, definitely perfect for the podcast. I mean, it's exactly uh, the type of thing that I want to talk about. So you're the perfect person for it. Um, but yeah, so today we're, we're actually going to, you know, look into your kind of research and talk about uh, women like in the Midwest, kind of like the whole urban rural scene in the 1920s. So um, I thought we could start with what was the difference between the typical American woman and then like the rural Midwestern woman? Like, was there any differences or was there a lot? Well, in the traditional sense, people say that there's differences just because they there's the betrayal is that rural women didn't have access to everything. They didn't have as many opportunities. And just because in reality, it took longer for the developments of the 20s to come into the Midwest. But really, these girls were the same. They all wanted to grow. They all wanted to develop more and do more things than the previous generations before them. Just the trend started more in rural area and excuse me, urban areas, and got more and have developed into the rural areas. And it was the women who pushed for these changes to come because women were like, "We want these appliances. We want the clothes. We like these haircuts." And they're like, we're going to go for it and we're going to bring it to us because the men were a little more hoity-toity about it. And we're like, this is just expensive. This is different. I don't like it. And women were like, this will make our lives better. Just trust me. And then men were like, wow, this is genius. And the women were like, I know. <laughs> yeah, I would say it would be. So the difference just being timing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess it's the same nowadays when, you know, cities and bigger areas do develop quicker than 
you know, little villages and stuff like that. So it doesn't surprise me that there was quite a big difference in the timings of it. But um, it's interesting that kind of women were kind of watching the the women in the urban areas and going like, oh my God, like we need this, like please happen here. Yes. They were, they would either read about it, see it because movies were starting to come in. The radio was becoming big and they're like, well, why don't we have these things? And so they just pushed for it and went, worked for it to bring it in. Yeah, and it w- must have been, like, such a big thing to actually, like, be connected with, like, film and radio and stuff like that. Because I imagine, like, these areas were pretty cut off when without these things. Yes. Originally, also, a lot of different historians were, like, a lot of the Midwesterns felt um, upset being left behind in air quotations because at first the developments when it reached them and they're like um excuse me I'm here too so there was a huge disconnect but the bringing of the radios like divide connected the whole divided nation yeah and with such a big country like America like it's difficult to keep you know, Britain connected in, like, the 20s, let alone America, where you've got countries, like, you've got states that are so far away from each other, you'd never even know if anything was going on there. Yes. Just because in the 1920s, it was finally getting into... The West was starting to become more developed, and so there's trying to connect this huge country between, so there's a lot of disconnect. Even though Chicago's in the Midwest, there still is a difference between Chicago and Iowa, Minnesota, Ohio, like that area. Yeah, so in general, what was life like in like the rural Midwest? Was it really basic? Like I'm imagining kind of like farms and stuff like that. There was. There is more rural rule where there's the farming communities and they tie into the whole agrarian myth, which basically the fact is that they make their food themselves, they make their clothes themselves, that makes them almost stronger in a way. And after the end of the First World War, there used to be this huge demand for agricultural products but then at the end of the war there was less need and so a lot of the people in the midwest start going more towards a more depression like cycle which manifested in the 1929 stock market crash they're like all connected so the midwest was a little more poor and rural but there were still growing towns it wasn't just farms they still got imports of creams from like Elizabeth Arden and they still had Sears catalogs coming in, which brought connected them all through style in that day to day life. So if there was a farm, they were more a little more traditional sense, but they slowed the women were like, we want these new modern appliances and build fixing their dirt floors whereas the towns were a little growing a little faster so there's even disconnect among the midwest in the fact of the farming communities versus the towns yeah i imagine well 
in terms of like area obviously if you're in a farm that's like five miles out of the town then obviously you are going to be slightly disconnected but I imagine like in the towns I guess there was like you know people would speak to each other and then I guess that's where like this kind of modernization was coming from because once one person turns around and says oh have you heard like there's this new thing that you know sweeps your floors for you and then they like you know you know like small towns it just spreads like wildfire doesn't it yes it also creates opportunities for more personal time which is something a lot of women didn't have before so say they get these modern appliances through a fridge or they get like a vacuum like product or something it creates more free time which is where the 1920s then develop into the more roaring sense of the word because there's a lot more leisure culture and opportunities to do more fun things. So like radio and movies filled in those gaps. So it, it really impacted the lives of rural women in the fact that they didn't have to be up from sun up to sundown, just cleaning, cooking, managing their households. Yeah, I mean, I think we take for granted like the modern... Um like applications and stuff because imagine having to kind of sweep the whole house or like go out every day to buy like food because you can't store it anywhere because a fridge doesn't exist like we don't think about these really simple things so I imagine like it would have really made a big social scene for women who now realize they don't have to stay in all day yes and there also was the introduction of home demonstration agencies, which um, women from cities would travel out to the Midwest and they would bring these new technologies and tips and tricks and were like, actually, you can save time by doing this. And they would ed teach these women who would then spread it throughout their community, which then helped everyone get connected. And they were like, huh. One report, they were like, it brings women a sense of connection. It brought them more value into their lives where before they felt like drudged, um, worn down. They now had a more sense of purpose and excitement for life because they knew more things. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine it being actually just like such a good time to be like, female and have stuff to like actually kind of be breaking out of this like stay at home wife type uh, value that kind of I guess was shaken up by the war because that kind of changed a lot of attitudes and then obviously in the 20s we're kind of seeing women trying to you know take power um, and you know actually improve their lives which obviously is great um, but did the media, so at the time, like, did the newspapers and, like, the media, did they kind of portray, like, so obviously we know, like, flapper girls, kind of, like, the urban city girls who like partying. Um, but did they kind of compare these girls to, like, the rural Midwestern girls and kind of, like, pit them against each other? In a way, they did. What I found is that they perceived the flapper to be this flamboyant, um, dis like almost disrespectful type of woman where they weren't traditional. They didn't go home. The popular narrative in the media was that a small town girl would get frustrated with her life, would grow anxious, 
and then she has to leave her small town to go to a big town. And there she realizes that there's all this fun and craziness. She engages in the flapper lifestyle. But then after that, she grows discontent with her life. And then she goes back home to the small town before to settle down, get married, have kids. It's all in tying into the ideal of it's either like the cult of true womanhood, the cult of domesticity, in the fact that women believe that the true purpose for one was in the home. And so there would be like, you do this, but you're going to come back because you're going to realize there's no fulfillment there. And so it was more of a cautionary tale being like, you're going to waste your time. But then there's also, there were writers that came up and they were like, actually these girls leaving bring has her learn more things. So when she comes back home, she's more knowledgeable. She's organized. She's had experiences and then she can educate the next generation to do more. So some flapper mothers would have to change their ideas of what a flapper meant in order to not lose their connection with their daughters. Yeah, it's really interesting that kind of um, some, like there's quite a differing opinion of them. Um, Because obviously, like, from popular media and stuff, we kind of see them as, like, yeah, like, the partying and the fun. But really, actually, maybe it was just, like, a way of, you know, getting away from the home and letting your hair down rather than anything more flamboyant. Um, I think it's just being portrayed as this really, like, glamorous thing by the, like, by the media at the time. Yeah, a lot of the media really perpetuate this through images like Clara Bow, Clara Bow, cannot speak today, Colleen Moore, um, Louise Brooks, she's a prime example of, she grew up in Wichita, Kansas. She moved around before that, but Wichita was her hometown. And then going to the main um, urban areas like New York City and lived life, but then she became alcoholic, like lost everything. So she was a really big cautionary tale being like, you could you could have fun, but you're going to lose everything in the end. Yeah. Um, no, definitely um, very, like, I feel like the media has a lot to kind of answer for in terms of, like, I guess some people were put off going and partying because, you know, they didn't want to be judged for it. Um, so, like, I find it quite interesting how they kind of, like, stigmatise it. Um, but... Was it kind of considered only, like, a flapper girl was only from, like, an urban area? Like, you couldn't be in a village and be a a kind of flapper girl? Or was it kind of a universal term for just a girl who was kind of acting out? Um, I find it more to be a, a term for a girl who's more acting out in a way, meaning she isn't living the life like her mother and grandmother did. I have scrapbooks and diaries from young girls who grew up in Iowa and they've they all will have the gigantic group of friends they all bob their hair wear the dresses she, one of them she calls her group of friends like the dirty five and she like would cut out descriptions of the flapper and she stuck it in her scrapbook and like this is what i am and i want to make sure i remember this moment and um uh, one of them, her name is Barbara Douglas. She grew up in the town that I live in, 
And while she went to finishing school on the East Coast, when she came back to Iowa, she was dead set on having the same amount of fun. She would drive around with all her friends, go on hundreds of dates. In her diary, she wrote endless list of boys being like, oh, I'm in love with this boy, John Turner, or I'm in love with this man she labeled DW. She does not give me her name. It drives mm -hmm. me nuts. And in, but she was dead set, but she was like, this place is boring, so I'm going to make it fun. And so she is dead set on creating the life she wanted, which is a really strong flapper ideal, meaning they were not going to be their mothers. They were not going to be their grandmothers, and they did everything they could to not be like them. And so the flapper was more set on creating a life that was different because after the war, a lot of the young men had died. A lot of them experienced like true terrors of war. And so after that, they're like, I'm going to enjoy life instead of just doing the duty that comes with it. Yeah. And I don't know if it was the same in the US, but obviously during uh, World War One in Britain, women, uh, you know, took on jobs that men would have been doing because there wasn't as many men in the country because they were fighting um, and kind of, you know, they had to run the home, work and, you know, just do everything because, you know, their husbands were away. Um, was that the case in America as well? And that started, you know, led to a bit of a change to begin with. In, on more on the East Coast, there was a stronger sense of that. More in the Midwest, there weren't as many young men who went off to war. More they focused in on their agriculture because the Midwest is the home for the farming community or a large portion of it. So there was a stronger push to do more. And so they kept growing more and more and selling it. So they had a big economic prosperity in the Midwest, but then after the war, it declined rapidly. And so um, after the war, it was more, they were then trying to make do with what they had and trying to grow more instead of being stagnant. Yeah, I imagine that had a big effect um, on uh, women's lives as well. If there was very little money, then I guess they couldn't go out and have a drink or, well, not a drink, because obviously drinking was not allowed in, in the 20s in America. Um, yeah. But I imagine, like, if, say, if a woman did want a a new fridge, then this limited them at that point. It did, which is another reason why it took longer for the new developments in the cities to come to the Midwest, just because they were trying to maneuver all the different economic aspects as well as the developments happening on the East Coast. Yeah, it's it's strange that, like, there's such a divide between the Midwest and, like, other areas. Um, like, I obviously, I don't know much about kind of American history, like, in depth enough, but I, that kind of surprises me because I kind of assumed that, like, there would be they'd all be similar. <laughs> yeah, it's tied into that whole agrarian myth with which is in its essence is because the agricultural community provides the food, a majority of the clothing and raw materials that society needs. 
it's not just a way to make a living. It's a way of life or more like tied into a noble calling, which the nobility side of things ties into the South more. But the agrarian values are seen as like more virtuous and patriotic. And the city is representative of like abundance, indulgence, and it's more evil. So those who come from a more rural setting hold themselves some in more higher regard because they're like, what we do actually matters versus the newspapers you produce, these movies, the radio programs. Like you're more worried about yourself versus this community. So that disconnect is tied into the whole like good versus bad in like quotation marks. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, well, in a way, it's kind of the same today. I don't know, like, I get the sense, like, people who kind of are in the arts and media and stuff are kind of, you know, disregarded by other professions because it's, like, not a real job. So I can kind of see, like, that that's still relevant in today's society. I, I imagine, imagine it's still like that in the Midwest as well. Yes, as someone who lives there... It is. <laughs> yeah, I guess, like, if you're from a family of, like, farmers and stuff like that, and then you kind of stray from that path, I imagine, you know, even now that would be bad. But back then, I bet people would be, you know, not speak to their <laughs> their, their children. Yes. And it actually ties in a lot of the reasons that some of the modern things came to the Midwest is because ex like leading experts of the time would tell Midwestern families, like, your kids are leaving the house. If you don't do something to keep them there, the your way of life is going to die out. And so that led to a push of like fathers and mothers being like, okay, we'll get this like new crop thing. I can't think of the words for farming, but or getting the more developments for the house by them a radio, go to movies, embrace these new things, or else your young population's going to run out on you. Yeah, I imagine it was probably pretty tough as a young person to, uh, you know, be kind of held back by the fact that your parents are old-fashioned, but there's not much you can really do until, you know, someone does tell them, like, stop being old. <laughs> exactly. And because all the young people are reading about and watching the movies, all these exciting things, and they're like, there's more to life in this, because before, the new connection that radio and movies and such brought also created more of a divide, because it opened their eyes instead of being like, I wonder what's there. Now they can see what's going on in Chicago, New York City, other cities like that. Yeah, and I imagine, like, Chicago was a pretty... Uh, you know exciting city at this time obviously you've got Al Capone and you know the massive rise of speakeasies and stuff um, so I imagine someone looking in at, on Chicago at this time would have been like so jealous <laughs> yes it, there was a lot of jealousy the um, Barbara Douglas who was my um, Cedar Rapids Diaries she visited major cities a lot of them would go shopping there and would go to events. And then she'd come here and she's like, this to, to Iowa, when I say here, and be like, this place is so boring. There's nothing to do. And so she then created more fun going more 
on more dates, doing crazy things with her friends. And she was also, she had wealth to do that. She was one of the richest families in Cedar Rapids, but not everyone had those opportunities. Instead, a lot of young women started going to colleges and that's where they got their first taste of modern, the modern times of the roaring twenties. Yeah. And so if a female in Iowa wanted to go to a bigger city and, you know, I don't know, go there and party, whatever. Uh, how easy would that have been to do? Was there transport links or did you kind of have to have money to be able to travel? You had to have some. Most of the time they would take, someone would have a car or they would borrow a car and go on a road trip. Um, trying to, I'm trying to remember how one of the diaries I read, she um, went down, I think, like, to one of the islands and with her friends. I don't know how much money she had, but she would have to be able to save up and go. So it wasn't a common thing. It was more like a once-in-a-lifetime type of thing for a lot of people in the Midwest to be able to go really far. But mostly car travel was the main thing. So we used to have a train. I'm trying to remember. But I believe there was also trains that were options. Yeah, I guess if you didn't have the money, potentially trains would have been cheaper. I mean, I don't have any concept of how much a train would have been in the past, but... Yeah. When it comes to 1920s money, I don't know. When one of them, she wrote, getting a permanent wave for her hair cost $32 and then when I calculated that that was about $500 today that's a lot of money <laughs> and so trying to keep up with the times was expensive yeah I imagine that you know you really had to be privileged to actually be able to fulfill this like actual flapper lifestyle whereas like what we're thinking like the the average you know midwestern girl probably would have not been that at all yeah, for the most part. And was also a very um, white-centric thing versus someone of color. Generally in the Midwest, outside of Chicago, there's not a strong like African-American presence. And more um, Latinx immigrants didn't start coming till I want to say, like the 30s and 40s, more that immigration started. But if the construct of the flapper is more tied to one's whiteness versus and having the privileges out other than other people of color. Yeah, I mean, at this time in, I mean, so certainly in the South, you've got the Jim Crow uh, laws um, in place during this time period. Um, I don't know about Midwest, how you know, if there was, I, I guess, border states is where you kind of come into the, you know, pure racism. So I kind of see where it was kind of focused on white people, because in, in general, in society, I guess, any um, African American community, unless it was, you know, New York or Chicago, just weren't accepted. Yes, it was also tied into like the topics of respectability. Because flapper girls were a little more flamboyant, they were more sexually 
immoral, immoral and did more risque things with their clothes, um, young women of color didn't have access to that because if they dressed that way or acted in the way that flappers did with like flirting and necking with boys in cars, they would have been seen as more promiscuous, like, um, like slutty or so overly sexual. And they would have been discriminated even more towards, which then would harm their like entire community. Cause they're like, this one girl clearly is more sexually immoral than you are. And so the rest of you aren't as upstanding citizens. And at the time of the 1920s, it was all about uplifting the race tied into a lot more young women were involved in clubs, which were more tied in doing community work and doing things to bring respectability to themselves. And being a flapper would do like ruin your reputation. Yeah, I guess like it truly was something for the for the privileged because I mean it must have been hard to kind of as a person of color to you know always kind of uphold yourself in the perfect manner because otherwise you know without even without doing that you could be scrutinized so it just seems like it would have been a not great for for that group of people. Exactly. And a lot of black women experience extreme sexual violence and discrimination. So anything that brought negative attention to themselves hurt them in general. And they were just trying to get ahead and be on equal footing. So that meant they couldn't be on this slippery slope. Yeah. I mean, it makes complete sense. And I think it is kind of proving the point of you know, white privilege is, is everything at this, at this time. Um, yeah. It's like all we think about when we think about the 20s and all we learn about is kind of the white flapper girls. And what's even more interesting is that a lot of the flapper trends, like the music, the dancing, the clothes, all originated from people of color. And then young white men and women were like, oh, this is great. We're going to make this for ourselves. And if you do it, then you're clearly irresponsible and immoral. But when we do it, it's for fun and pleasure. And we won't. The only thing bad that happens to us, you get like a tap on the wrist being like, oh, you're being bad. Yeah, definitely. And I guess like also like um, maybe not so much in like rural areas, but like in bars and like you know speakeasies like people of color would be performing um but they wouldn't actually be accepted to like go and party with the people they'd just be there like to be the entertainment yes and it's what's also if you like switch it in a way when you put these ideas together one of the reasons flappers and the young people of the 1920s would have been looked down upon is because what they're doing is a connection to African-American culture, so, which is another reason why older generations didn't like it as much because they know that jazz originated from African-American musicians and they know that the dancing originated closer to Harlem where there's a very large African-American population. And so their young daughters and sons doing it, even though they're appropriating it, and they changed it a bit, it still has those connections. And so they're like, you're now tied to this idea of 
blackness. And so the whole Rachel stereotypes continue in that black things are bad, even though our children love it and do it. Yeah, I imagine it would be a hard time as kind of a younger person in in the 20s because you've kind of got this old-fashioned ideology from your parents of like you know kind of racism and black is bad and all of that stuff but then you've also got everyone kind of you know enjoying the black culture and you probably think yourself like oh that's not so bad but you've kind of got like it pulling you both ways Mm, yes and a lot in the midwest culture wasn't a very large um, black population. I, I can't remember. In the some in the nineteen twenties, the black house was probably only around like a hundred to like two hundred people in Iowa City, which is where, um, the University of Iowa is located, and so they had a small, group of students trying to go to college, but they didn't have any place to live, and so through their club women, they, organized and bought a house to be like a dormitory for these women. And so there wasn't as large of a population, so they didn't have as much support. So it's harder to find examples of black flappers in the Midwest. Yeah, and I think, obviously, as we find with most areas of history, certain things aren't recorded very well. So you don't necessarily, if you look in an archive or something, you they might have recorded that someone went to university but they wouldn't necessarily record any other details of them. So then it makes it incredibly hard to find stories of uh, other people. It's so true. I more rely on newspapers and photos and anything I can find to try. Because I want to include in my research, like comparing white young women to black young women at the time to like see what are the differences and what does this mean but the gaps also teach us that at the time it would they probably didn't participate as many in the trends and they weren't included as much which tells us just as much as if we had those diaries and scrapbooks but i wish i did yeah i mean that that i yeah i guess the silence speaks louder than the uh, anything else but it would have been it would be really useful if just like a few diaries could turn up from some exactly. young from some young co- people of color and then you can just kind of go off that to see what it was like <laughs> yes i love looking at case studies and so i have a lot of scrapbooks and diaries that i've been able to get from the archives just because i like looking at people themselves instead of like generalities but when you don't have those you're like how can i tell this history like what does this tell me yeah, no, I get, like, the personal kind of stories are just so much more interesting than kind of trying to just make an assumption of people without even kind of reading further into them. So, like, it's definitely interesting. Um, have you noticed, like, I don't know if any of the diaries have mentioned, like, anything about um, people of colour or, any, like, any comments or anything like that or is it just completely blank? It's completely blank. It's so terrible. They just, when they talk about their friends, they have all their photos there and they all are white men and women in these diaries and scrapbooks. And I'm like, did you not talk to anyone else? And they were more focused on going to the sporting events 
to the clubs they went to the parties and i'm like i understand this so this tells me you didn't care good to know yeah no it would be interesting if like there was just anything to kind of go on but um maybe it's something that will be found in like 10 years time i hope so yeah i i have a lot of like club records so there's a lot of clubs that existed in the midwest it was a real big hub for like the national association for colored women there was a large presence in iowa and so i'm starting to dig through their records just to look at when they bought the house maybe there's something from the students themselves to tell me about their experience as opposed to through the eyes of the older women. So the women in like their 30s and 40s have a different take on the 20s than the women in their like 18 to 20, in their into their 20s. Yeah, I imagine like kind of, if you kind of read any accounts from older women, it would just be like slagging off the younger generation. <laughs> yes, there's either, there's a lot more of, especially in for women of color, they're like, we're, we're not associated with the flappers. We need to talk to our daughters about being respectable daughters and members of society. And, and they're like, and you, and there's either the mothers who embraced the flapper culture themselves. And they're like, shame on you woman. Cause you're leading the young women astray. They're like really hard on this whole, no flapper isms for us here. Yeah, and I think in uh, America at this time, the kind of like temperance movement was really uh, big, which is obviously what brought in prohibition, but it was also like yeah. around loads of other stuff, like kind of like sex work and sexuality and just everything that could kind of be judged as immoral is like they were just really on it. Yes, in the temperance movement, they were strongly against like sexual immorality. Um, they were also trying to protect like mothers from their abusive husbands who drank too much or from if uh, there was no more drunk men, there would might be less rape or less sexual discrimination. And so they're like, we're trying to protect everyone from then also having young pregnancies too early. So then you're at a handicap when you're trying to get ahead. And that was like collective across the temperance movement when in terms of co for women of color and non-women of color, but they were still a divided group. They still did not work together because white women were like, we're not working with you, but we'll, you can keep good working. We won't stop you, but we don't want to work with you. <laughs> that just, it's just typical, isn't it? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, and I, well, obviously at this point as well, I don't think American women got the vote until the late 20s, if I'm right. I feel like I... 1920, um, white women got the right to vote. Yeah, and then later on it was other Not groups. until... Basically the, the 60s were black women then got the right to vote, and then it was still none for Latina women and for Asian Americans. Women, Native American women weren't till the late seventies, eighties. I mean, that's just crazy, isn't it? Like, you can't imagine that being the case. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, the whole suffrage movement was very racially divided, and actually, suffragettes hated flappers. Like, so just 
they hated them so much. They were like, they're fake feminists. They're going to ruin our movement. And they're going to bring disgrace to what we're trying to do. And so they were like, they're not true. They're not, we're not with them. We don't like them. Yeah, I think like um, the kind of issue at the time was this kind of divide between like feminism um because obviously you've kind of got like the flapper girls who are kind of taking the power and you know they think they're feminists because they're like going against the typical wife and mother thing but then you've also got the kind of other side of the feminists where they think that women acting like that is anti-female and they should be stopped even though really if they were true feminists they'd just let women do whatever they want <laughs> yeah exactly yeah feminism the definition is defined through the time but it's so fascinating being like these women had more liberties or did more things and they're like oh they're bad we're the good ones and it's also like part of the generational gap as well because most suffragists were older women as opposed to flappers who were in their early 20s. Yeah, I assume some flappers, like young women, still were interested in the whole getting the vote and, like, you know, campaigning and women's rights and stuff, though. Yes, there were some. There, Those were more in the cities. There wasn't as much a strong um, voting presence in the Midwest. A lot of women, if they did vote, just voted with their husbands and they were like, oh, it's fine. Like, he knows what's best and they didn't work as much. Ex one of the, the leading suffragists at the time, Carrie Chapman Cat, came from Iowa, so we love her. <laughs> the national, national treasure of Iowa. Yes, <laughs> we love Carrie Chapman Cat. Um, but I'm assuming she moved to the city to do the campaigning. Bit. Yes. Yes, she did. I'm trying. To, she worked mostly around the East Coast and Chicago moving around. She and Alice Paul were on two separate sides, even though they're working towards the same mission. Yeah, I mean. But they were like the opposite sides of the movement. Yeah, that's the crazy thing about the kind of suffrage movement, even like, so in Britain, in America, like, you had kind of different groups of women working for the same goal, but they didn't like each other. It just it baffles me that they didn't just think, let's all work together as one. Yeah, and they're more determined on how we're going to get there, so they didn't like that some had a more gentle approach, like you, like... I think of, like, Phyllis Schlafly and her group, like, they make, like, pies, and they, like, go and, like, sweet talk and, like, write gentle letters. And then on the opposite side, you have those, like, actually protesting in the streets, leading demonstrations, and they're like, if you do it my way, well, they won't hate us and look down at us if we do a more gentle way, but they're like, they're not going to take us seriously if we don't use our voice. Yeah, I think that's been the problem in the movement across, like, all the different countries. Um, but really, in the end, I think kind of all of it together did work, obviously. Yes, eventually they got the right to vote in 1920, right? As in 19, I can't remember what I was listening to. They're like, 1920 had, I can't think of the Third Amendment, but, like, the Prohibition was introduced in 1920 
um, so women's right to vote was in 1920, and then there's another one that I can't think of the top of my head, but the 1920s ushered this huge era of massive change, and it all even started, like, right in the beginning. Yeah. Which makes the period so interesting in general. Yeah, definitely. It seems like it's a really kind of progressive period of time. Um, it, like, kind of, in comparison to the, like, 10 years previous, which were, you know, the the early 20th century from, like, 1900 was really still quite a backwards society. Like, it was very old-fashioned. So then to go to the 20s and it changed completely must have been, like, really noticeable at the time. Yeah, it was... It definitely switches from the era of the Gilded Age into the Progressive Era, which... The Gilded Age I only have in reference to rich high society, but it's definitely leaving the more traditional ideas into the 1920s and then bringing in like even the idea of the flapper itself is such a counter to the Gibson girl and the new woman. But in reality, it's just like an extension of those. So if you picture like one of those web diagrams, you have like the new woman in the center, one of the side bubbles would be like the Gibson girl, but then on the other side, you would have another bubble be the flapper. And in the end, they all are connected in a way just to women modernizing themselves and leaving the ideas of true womanhood, meaning being in your household and that's it. Instead, women wanted to go out and they wanted to work outside of the home. They wanted to dress in a more loose way so they weren't like confined with like their corsets and they wanted to cut their hair so they didn't have to constantly pin it up and they could just brush it and leave and it was just all tied in this idea of independence yeah and I guess like after so long of like having to wear corsets and stuff like it was a welcome change to like change the clothing and uh, be a bit more free because I just imagine like how awful it would have been having to walk around in all those layers for so long I know I would die like as a child I was always like this raging like feminist like I don't like anything girl power all the way <laughs> and I would always be like no no corsets no dresses know anything girly like that's what I always picture because it's like this massive shit shift I'm sorry and in one of them it's one of the historians commented it was like women had to give up their femininity so like the flapper style is more box shaped it didn't like hug their curves and it like flattened their chest and they had to give up that side of their femininity in order to be taken seriously and become more boyish man in their looks to be taken seriously. Yeah, it's a good point, actually, because I kind of hadn't thought about that. But yeah, when you look at the kind of dresses and the way that they kind of, if you think about the typical, like, styles, like, they were a lot less, yeah, female than previous and I guess the hair would have been like a shock to everyone <laughs> yes because a lot of women's femininity was tied into the longer like your hair was and such was a huge tie into your femininity like before 
not and everyone could see you with your hair down and like you're a married woman your hair goes up and has to be covered in some styles and so cutting their hair so short is again cutting that ties to that victorian air ideal of beauty yeah i mean even today like having shorter hair as a female people like judge you for it it's like um like literally we're not in the 1920s anymore <laughs> yes it's even it's also connected to the idea of like like lesbianism and if you're if you're a woman becoming more manlike then you must be de like deviant and more on that sense spectrum of things which is a whole other discussion but that was another reason why I was so hesitant because they're like, okay, are all these girls lesbians now? And are they're not going to get married anymore? We're not going to have any more children? Like, the whole society has fallen. And, and so the flapper was a complete 180 on the whole idea of what it meant to look like a woman. But what's even more funny is, like, even though newspapers and commentators would be like, these are a horrible example of a woman. You shouldn't be like them. The advertisers capitalized on this and they were like, no, to be a, a woman, like you'll wear the makeup. You should cut your hair, wear this style. And they made a lot of money on this. So there was like a whole confliction on both sides because then also the movie stars would have the hair, would have the clothes. So to be like them, you had to do those things. But then at the same time, then you're dealing like a bad person in society. So basically, you couldn't win either way. So Exactly. Being a woman, you can't win. <laughs> Only if you're happy in your house, don't stand out. Which is another reason why, like, the whole notorious woman idea, like I mentioned, if you did those things, then you don't stand out. And then how are you supposed to know then what... Of society values but yeah you can't win when you're a woman just in general in history yeah definitely it sounds it sounds like it and also yeah like you were saying about makeup and stuff like that industry did really take off during this time like I'm pretty sure Maybelline and brand no is it Max Factor was founded in the 20s or at least I think in one of my earlier podcast episodes we were talking about how um, a relation of Max Factor was actually a gangster. Um, so it's very interesting, like, kind of all these links between different parts of, like, 20 society all kind of tie in together. Yeah, beauty culture took off in the 1920s because also women had more free time and also they were a lot healthier because a lot of the new developments made everyone's lives better in the sense of health-wise. And so now they're like, well, now I can think about my appearance. And Midwestern women really gravit went to that because they were like, I want to look just as pretty as the city girls. And so the makeup industry and the hair industry and the clothes industry, like ready-made clothing emerged. And then we have makeup and you have Companies like um, Madam C.J. Walker's Hair Company, or you have like Mary Kay and traveling around selling makeup and skincare and such, really emerged in this time period. Yeah, I imagine like not having to go and get your clothes, you know, fitted to you and taking all that time 
to either make them yourself or you know get a tailor to make them probably did really improve things yeah so much less time like the sears catalogs would go out and you could order these dresses which then they'll introduce the whole idea of like your body image and also another way for racial oppression is that a lot of women of color were more like full figured or curvier and the flapper style was a much more box shaped and didn't like hug that like your body and also it um, emphasized the slenderness and so another reason why women of color couldn't participate in being a flapper is because their body didn't wasn't slim and thin like a young woman a white woman's body would yeah i imagine that would have been um well it's just another way to exclude them i guess um and i guess people that did try and participate in the trends quickly realized that it just wasn't going to be for them like i imagine if you're slightly you know curvier or anything like that you're just not going to fit into like (laughs) this flapper go exactly and so then they led to diet cultures emerging and a lot of women then came focused on what they were eating and how much and and when midwestern women when you like picture like a stock image a lot of image would be like a more full-bodied woman who's like i picture more like a german woman in a way with like she has a larger nose she has like more messy hair like in the 1920s, whereas a city girl will be long, slim. And so a lot of women in the Midwest would be like, I want to look like her. And so the emerging beauty culture arrived. I mean, it has its perks and it's not perks. (laughs) Um, Because obviously it kind of, it just started in a destructive way. And it's just been going like that ever since. Like, we've never had a time where the the kind of beauty industry has been kind to women. (laughs) Never. The beauty industry in itself is something that's really interesting to dive into in the 1920s. Because a lot of it started then. Yeah, and I know, like, there was, like, all the problems of no regulation on the products as well so a lot of people were getting very ill from what was getting put onto their face and stuff like that yes it was very dangerous but women still were like i don't care i want to look like these women do in this magazine and i'll do it whatever the cost yeah i I kind of get that sometimes like when you've had like a bad day and you're just like you know, you wake up in the morning and you're just thinking, like, if I have no makeup here right now, like, I'll, I'll just use anything. Just, I need to look better. <laughs> yeah, the whole idea is just being better. Like, it also stems from the whole, like, the country's like, okay, after this war, because at the time, at the end of the First World War, they were like, okay, never again. This is the war to end all wars. <laughs> we're going to become better as a society. And... And that led to also development of the whole leisure culture industry, the beauty culture industry, advertising, movies, radio, all of that. And then also, I don't not study economic history, but I know they were trying to develop that. But that led to the stock crash. So they clearly weren't didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, I think that's like the main problem with the 20s is like 
they kind of were creating all this stuff and like creating new industries and like being like, oh my God, life's going so well, like we're doing amazingly. And then people just start losing confidence for some reason and then everything just falls apart and everyone's mm-hmm. like freaking out and, you know, it leads it leads to the worst economic crash that lasted for, well, it lasted for like 20 years or something, didn't it? Yeah, it didn't turn around until it, the America entered the Second World War. But also, I know a lot of Europe was also going through major depression at the same time, which is where um, the Third Reich comes in, in Germany at least, because I know they were, like, majorly in debt because of the First War. Yeah, and I know America was the one helping them because they kind Mm -hmm. of thought, if we help Germany, then that will stop another war. And then, uh, then America obviously had to revoke their help because they ended up in a bad place. And then that's, you know, kind of one of yep. the reasons why World War Two started. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, until the Second World War, then the economy boosted again. And then it all started turning around, which then led to the 50s. But we did not go into a depression after that. I think they learned their lesson. Yeah. I mean, I guess like with such change going on in the 20s it was kind of inevitable that it wasn't going to go as well as they were thinking um especially when they were losing all the money on alcohol taxes like the you know like yeah. they, it's just crazy that they thought like that was a great idea <laughs> and also i think they should have known cuz there was like the whole whiskey rebellion in the 1780s where they tried to like change the taxing system on whiskey and then they were like oh this is backfiring because we're all like losing money we're gonna stop this right away if i remember correctly it's been a long time <laughs> yeah i mean but they should know don't mess with americans alcohol yeah they should have known that because i think it was a massive mistake and i mean i think i did read like before that actually in terms of kind of like domestic abuse child abuse like um incidents in the home and stuff like that Prohibition actually did help women and families. It did. it did, just did not help the economy. Yeah, I and mean... So you're like, which one are you going to get? Yeah. Yeah, I guess that was the choice that they made to help women, and really, either way, they were. it was going to affect them because an economic crash is obviously going to hurt the family. <laughs> yeah. The whole family ideal like having the whole true and like your wife at home raising the kids it it was starting to become a more antiquated ideal just because after the war women now had had experience leaving the home and they're like okay how are we going to get them back and then you have the flapper coming in who's like i'm out of here i'm gonna go live my life and not be confined to this one town for the my whole life and, but a lot of, like, leading experts at the time were, like, writing, like, actually the flapper's no different than her mother, than her grandmother. She's just more open about the changes she's doing. She's more out there. Like, it's more reported on. It's more noticed than before. Yeah, I guess with the development of uh, film and all that kind of stuff, it was easier to kind of stigmatize um the flapper um and call them out rather than you know i'm sure there was a big change between the middle of the you know the 19th century to the early 20th century um but you know it wasn't as well reported on 
at the time so people didn't, you know, freak out about it. Exactly. I had read this story. Um, in New York, there was this, it's called like the 300, but part of that is that there was this Iowa Society of New York where rich people would move to the East Coast from Iowa, but they like formed their own little club being like, we're all from Iowa, so we're all going to hang out. So the women were having this event and this writer comes in and she like interviews them all and they all find out, let's see, where's my numbers? Like 90%... Um, would attend church or they 90% of the women attendants had participated in various kissing games and gone on car rides with men alone. 60 to 65% had voted in the last election. 75% knew their husband's income and so forth. But what she was getting at was that like you're all doing the same things that your daughters are doing. You just notice it as opposed to when before when it was like this big hush hush secret. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's just about a switch in, like, I don't know, a switch in attitudes um, between, like, the generations, I guess. Um, and I'm sure, like, even today, we, you know, our parents probably think that we're so different from them, but really, you know, it follows a pattern of, like, generation by generation kind of doing things differently. Yeah, I was just thinking, I was like, what the whole argument, like, kids are on their phones all the time, like, or on social media, like, everyone posts everything these days, and, like, the modes of how people communicate just differ, as opposed to, like, our parents and the next generations. Yeah, I mean... Parents do, so we all just, like, it's like a similar pattern, but at the time, you're like, it's very noticeable. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, to be fair, like, that's all you hear these days, isn't it, about phones and, you know, the 1920s, it would have been about getting your hair cut short. <laughs> yeah, or you're always going out with these boys and you're dancing all the time. You're listening to this music. And, and before, they were like, a lady should only appear in the newspaper three times. When she's born, when she gets married, and when she dies. Anything <laughs> extra just means you are improper and you're, like, a bad person. Yeah. And I suppose, like, you know, the 20s is only maybe, like, 30 years from when you had to have an escort to, like, go uh, be alone with a male. So, like you know to suddenly then be allowed to be alone with a man it would have been like oh my god she's alone with a man yeah who knows what they're doing and they were doing crazy things one of the diaries she was like i'm going to teach my children about necking so when they go to school they're not clueless like i was yeah and she's like i'm gonna make sure they know <laughs> i mean that's just so like funny to like, it must be so funny to read, like, some of the comments that they've written. Yeah, I love reading. I, like, picture their little voices in my head. And she's like, ten weeks of this winter term. I'm going to die. And I'm like, you're so dramatic. And this is a different letter, but another one she was like, if I don't receive a letter, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something to get attention. Like, and then I just love reading their little, because I'm like, they're not just boring like empty figures like they have personalities 
and I'm reading their words so I have an idea of what they're like. Yeah, and I guess it kind of makes it feel closer to, like, you know, your own life, as in, like, you can kind of relate to some of the stuff or completely not relate to some of the stuff they're writing. Yes. Like, one of my favorites, she got a new car, and like me, I named my cars, but she got a car and she named it. She's like, this name is Jerome. And I'm like, this is the best name for a car I've ever read. <laughs> and it's funny to me because like, it's the same. A hundred years later, I named my cars and Barbara named her car. Obviously, you need to name your car the same as what she named her car. <laughs> yeah, that's my plan. I'm like, I will now have a car named Jerome. Just like Barbara. Yeah, it's interesting that that's still a thing, like, a hundred years later. It's great. I love it. Yeah, my car's name is Bucky, so I have, but I'm getting a new one. So my new one will be Jerome. <laughs> love it. I mean, it's a great, great way to, like, you know, incorporate a little bit of, like, history into your everyday life. Yes. My whole family gets tired of it. But <laughs> it is who I am. <laughs> yeah. Um... So, I thought I'd ask the question that I've been asking everyone. Can the roar, can the 20s be considered the Roaring 20s in the Midwest? I would say so. I would say the roar might have been a smaller bit, like, quieter. But the roar definitely overtook the Midwest in that it changed because moms and grandmothers and fathers and grandfathers were forced to adapt and they weren't stuck in their ways as you might picture they were like okay we're going to change because we need to keep everyone here so the roaring 20s in the midwest definitely occurred because life completely switched on its head and then leading into the 1930s and 40s it just kept growing and so now the world is connected yeah, definitely. I fully um, agree that there was an element of roaring 20s. I mean, I, you know, most, I think most of my podcast episodes, it has been considered roaring, but actually not every single area of 20s life has. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's interesting. Yes. My favorite is that... um. A lot of newspapers would like, they're like, we're going to find the most average person ever and ask them about flappers and women and what's going on. And they're all like, I think that flappers are just the same as my, my wife and my mother and all that. They're just more open. And I like thinking of it that way is that even though the flapper like stuck out, I think it was just a way to divide people through like newspapers being like, oh, they're bad, and then advertising being like, oh, this is perfect, and profiting all this money. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think, you know, newspapers have a lot to answer for. <laughs> they do. I love looking at newspapers, but they can drive me nuts. Yeah. Um, you know, to be fair, like old newspapers are very interesting because they're just completely different to like the rubbish that's produced today. <laughs> Yes, for sure. I'm like, I always just start with like the New York Times or like Chicago Tribune or something. And then I go from there because small town Midwest databases are really hard to navigate. 
Yeah, and a lot of people didn't preserve their newspapers. So Very well. No, they did not. <laughs> Difficult. Um, but yeah, um, do you want to wrap up the episode uh, with any like interesting facts or stories? If you've got any left, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I might have asked too much already. Oh no. Um, I think my first. I started this project because I was working on a semi-different project, but I was asking this expert, and I was like, "Do you think there were flappers in Iowa?" And he was like, "No, I don't think so. Like that was more of a big city thing." And I was like, "I think you're wrong." Because, like, it can't just be a one-time thing. And so, one of them, just thinking that small towns or smaller collectives don't have as same impact or things to offer as, like, the big cities is this stereotype and idea that I think history and like historians are starting to change because there's this growing like midwest southern like western historian group growing and so the idea that they don't exist if they say like no it doesn't happen i would just say keep looking because these experts in quotation marks don't know everything and especially look into women and especially women of color and just other mo- minority groups that should be looked into more and just ask the questions and then be like, I don't think you're right. And just diving in. That would be how I'd say. Yeah, I think once you find one woman in the archive and then you get on a roll and then you can literally, you feel like you've actually found something. I think that's the hard part, just finding one person to kind of, just be your starting point yes and you just can't be afraid to keep looking because it presents itself differently everywhere yeah definitely and yeah i think you know with with other things like women of color and stuff like just look look as hard as possible (laughs) exactly and visit your archives they love helping you even if you think you're annoying them you're not yeah, I mean, and if you are, then you don't want to be there. Do you want to be a, like real scholars and historians and all that want to help you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, people choose to be archivists, so if they don't enjoy their job, then they've gone down the wrong route. Exactly. I'm like, and it's hard job to get into. So, if you're there, then they want to help you. Yeah, um, and so if anyone was, like, thinking of looking at kind of maybe, wait, potentially a similar topic to this, then I feel like they should just give you a message and you can guide them on their way. Oh, for sure. I love talking about archives. Like, I spend, like, all day in the archives half the time, and I'm like, just ignore me, I'm just working. <laughs> and make sure you, I would invest in just, like, a scanning app instead of taking notes, because then you just have the source with you at all times. It's great. (laughs) Yeah, so for any archival uh, advice, definitely, definitely message you. (laughs) For sure. I love archives. (laughs) 
yeah, I mean, I, I've only been to a few, so I feel like I'm not the expert here. I feel like that's definitely you. Oh, I'll try. <laughs> it's more just, you just annoy them to help you. It's what I do. I just ask a million questions. I'm sure that they, they secretly enjoy it, even if they, they don't act like, like they do. Okay, you already asked this question. I'm like, yes, but in this way, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, I feel like we have covered a lot in this uh, episode and I feel like I've definitely uh, learned a lot about the Midwest because I'm not really an American... I know a bit about American history, but not as much as I really should because I find it quite interesting. Um, So thank you so much for coming on the episode and uh, talking about uh, this topic. My pleasure. I haven't done anything like this in a long, long time, so this was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I'll make sure to tag your Instagram uh, when I share the episode so that if anyone does want to reach out to you, then they can go for it. And, you know, you can chat even more about history. um, Because why not? Why not? Why not? I'm like, I'm not in school for the next year, so I'm going to miss it. So definitely come bother me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, so thank you, um, and I think that is a great way to end the episode, so thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening and inviting me here. Yeah, and thank you everyone for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed learning even more about the 1920s. <laughs> <laughs>